0: If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Tonight we have gathered together for this special occasion of setting aside three men to serve as deacons. To this body of believers and tonight uh, this sermon will in part be directed specifically to those men but there will be other parts that will benefit the totality of the congregation as well. Where the church is concerned the the sermon will help you see what is expected not just of these men but of all of the deacons. In the process I hope you will receive some specific uh, encouragement as well as direction on how you can encourage them. Al, Dave, and Randy, I want to specifically challenge you tonight as you hear the scriptures to serve well, Uh, not because of a desire to exalt yourself, but because uh, tonight you have been called and will be set apart specifically for Christ's church. And so I begin reading some very familiar words from Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. When they had, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timnon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. God bless the reading of his word. Our passage opens by describing the threat to the church. The threat to the church. Verse 1 says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. Now if we just read there, we would be greatly encouraged. Uh, we see that the disciples were increasing in number. In other words, the gospel was going forward. People were hearing, people were believing, and the church was growing. That is something that we love to see uh, anywhere in any age. But it was also something that Satan did not like. He's not mentioned specifically in the text, but the evidence of his work is clear. We'd seen it in the earlier chapters in uh, the book of Acts as he's tried to derail the progress of the church in various ways, and he does so here as well. Notice the contrast in how verse 1 begins and how it ends. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Hebrews. Notice this is not now any threat from outside the church, but rather a threat from within the church. The translation I have that has the word complaint. Uh, is rendering that same word which is used in the Old Testament to describe the grumbling and the murmuring of the Israelites against Moses all throughout Exodus and Numbers. The complaint involves two ethnic groups within the church. First there was the Hellenists. These would have been the Jews that would have been dispersed throughout the surrounding regions and now have returned to settle in Palestine, specifically in the area of Jerusalem. Though ethnically Jewish, They would have spoken Greek and had more in common with Greek culture than with Jewish culture. They would have lived and thought like Greeks. Then second, there are the Hebrews. These were the Jews native to the land of Palestine. They would have spoken mainly Hebrew and Aramaic and followed all the customs of the Jewish culture. And following the example of the Old Testament, the early church believed it was their responsibility to provide care for those who could not care for themselves, for the widows and for the orphans. And so specifically here, they have taken upon themselves to care for all the widows who are part of the church. All those who have faith in Christ and who have been widowed, they are providing resources for them. But it seems in the midst of the distribution of food for these widows, the Hellenists were being neglected. In fact, we don't know why that was happening. We don't even really know if it was happening. We just know that the complaint went up from the Hellenist to the Hebrews and it came to the ears of the apostles. The result was a two-pronged threat to the church. First of all, there was a threat to the needs of God's people. Were these widows being served or not? Were they being served in a way that met their needs? But secondly, there was a threat to the unity of God's people. I mean, just think about the, the the lines upon which this lay. You had Greek-speaking believers, Greek-cultured believers, and Hebrew-Jewish-cultured believers. And this is where the fault line is. It does not take much creative thinking to, to imagine our own world and our own modern day where we have... Churches, entire denominations sometimes separated by nothing more than the color of our skin how easy it would have been in that moment for the church to already begin to segregate, to already begin to divide. The first Hebrew church of Jerusalem, the first Greek church of Jerusalem, there was a threat to the unity of God's people. And even today that those kinds of threats still exist, especially at the level of the local church where there is constant pressure that threatens to undo its unity most often as the needs of believers go unmet, whether that is spiritual or whether it is physical. And so this now is the threat to the church. This is the threat that the apostles observe and therefore they gather the church together that they might arrive at the solution of the church, the solution of the church. In verses two through five, we read this, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. What the dissolution involved? At least two things. First of all, the acknowledgement of necessary priorities. The apostles saw the severity of the issue, but they also knew the priorities of their calling. You know, verse 4 has the word ministry there to describe uh, the prayer and the preaching of the apostles, but it's the same word that shows up in verse 2 when they speak about serving tables. It is diakonos, from which you can even hear we get the word deacon or servant. And I think one of the things as we pull back from the rest of the New Testament, we see is that every believer, especially every leader in the church, are called to serve. The question is just a matter of how they serve. There is a strong tendency, though, for the way the New Testament writers to use this verb, diakoneo, to refer to the kind of serving that involves the very practical kinds of acts of service that involve supplying material needs and literally sometimes table service. So it's most often used in that practical kind of way. So you can see examples where Peter's uh, mother is healed by Jesus and she recovers from the fever and immediately she gets up and she diakoneos Jesus and the apostles. She begins serving them a meal. And and, and we we could go on and on and on giving all the kinds of, of ways, varied ways in which these kind of temporal needs are described with this verb of serving. And what the apostles observe is that they must be true to their priorities, but they also must be true to the larger priorities of the church, namely the care of widows. It is a priority for the church for the physical needs of the body to be met. And so what they believe the church needs at this time are a group of men dedicated to serving the church by helping maintain its unity through the meeting of practical and physical and temporal needs. And so for the apostles, it's not an option just to say, ah, let them figure it out. You know, we can't be bothered with that kind of stuff. No, they can't pull away the time of their priorities, but this needs to be Address and eventually, uh, what we see here, this initiative becomes formalized uh, throughout the time of the New Testament into what we know as an official office called deacon so by the time Paul writes his instructions to Timothy, there are two instru- there are two offices of leadership in the church: elders and deacons. The elders serve through leading teaching, counseling, and in general shepherding the flock of God while deacons serve with their readiness to meet the physical needs of the body, helping ensure ultimately the harmony and the growth of the church. What the apostles are saying is both kinds of ministry, both kinds of service are essential to a healthy church. If you just have one, you're missing something important. doesn't matter which one it is. If you only have one office, if you only have one type of service being rendered to the body, something's missing and the life of that congregation will not be healthy. So, Dave and Randy and Al, it is imperative as you re- that as you begin serving, you remember the origins of your position, that you remember this initial need that became the basis for what we call deacon today. Your service to this church can never be reduced to just mere tasks, to re- to specific responsibilities, though you will have those but rather those specific responsibilities come in the larger context of the service that you are rendering that is accompanied with a general attitude of love and desire for unity for this body. That is what should pervade all of your service. That's what you're striving for as you minister to us. Likewise, your role as deacons will help to assist the leadership of this church, Pastor Richard and I, and any future elders, by relieving us of unnecessary pressures and distractions that would divert us away from the attention we must give to prayer and the ministry of the Word and its general oversight and care. Looking back to our passage, we see that the apostles' recommendation for a group of men to serve as deacons... Proto-deacons, at least here, not only reflected the necessary priorities, but I also had necessary character requirements. Who can serve as a deacon? That's an important question. The apostles here, as they have this kind of initial group, say, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Later, as this position becomes more formalized in the churches, Paul will say to Timothy and to the rest of the church at Ephesus, deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. The women who serve likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve as deacons gain a good, good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now in all of that basic criteria, and some of you are thinking basic, but yes, all of that basic criteria is not a set of skills. Did you notice that? In fact, it's only a very similar list right before it was the elders, the, one of the only skills listed is able to teach. There's no, there's no necessary administration, administrative abilities, no background from a secular world that you bring to this position. One of the things that frustrated me so much in one of my former churches was overhearing a conversation that I was kind of uh, not really a part of, but invited into because I was uh, interning there at the time. And we had just approved five new deacons, two of which, when questioned during their ordination time, could not name the two ordinances of the church as being baptism and the Lord's Supper. But they were approved anyway. Why? Because they were very successful businessmen. And it was thought that that kind of practical wisdom would benefit the church. And it well may have, but not in the kind of position they were being elected to serve in. What we see here are not skill sets, but character qualities. That is the standard for who can and cannot serve as a deacon. It's an issue of spiritual maturity. Men, this is why Crossway has set you apart. They have observed in you these character qualities. Character qualities that befit the office and reflect your maturity in Christ. And understand that this is not a union job. It is not enough to put your 60 days in and know that everything will be okay now. I can continue to serve. It doesn't work that way. Just as with the elders, these are ongoing character qualities. So that you continually strive for maturity, not being complacent in your growth. Well, we saw the threat to the church that gave rise to the solution of the church. And when that solution was embraced, it resulted in the growth of the church. The apostles put forward their recommendation, and notice what Luke says in verse 5. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, there's a reason why I didn't label the previous section the solution of the apostles, The idea originated with them, but we call it the solution of the church. Why? Because they didn't simply come in and make a decision for the body. They set it before the church and they said, here's what we think that you should do. What do you think about it? Now, it frankly boggles my mind when they talk about the fact that they gathered the entirety of the believers together. What in the world did that look like? Where did they do that? Was it in Solomon's portico at the temple? And furthermore, what in the world would that business meeting have been like? When, when, when you've got, they're coming up and they're going to tell the whole church, here's what we observed, here's our complaint. And, and the apostles are going, oh, they, what are we going to do? You know? and, and, and so they, they begin to pray and God says, look, I think this is what you should do. And they say, you know what? This is what we think we should do. And notice what happens the church is the one who approves it it says in the text that it pleased the whole gathering to accept the solution it wasn't just the apostles solution it was the church's solution across the way there's a reason why the nominations begin with you as a body there's a reason that the elders don't just appoint deacons that we think are fit to the task it is important that you have a hand in this decision making process and that Likewise, as we see in the text in just a few minutes, you have a hand in setting them apart in prayer. You are the ones who recognize their fitness to serve by examining their character qualities. You are the ones who voted that they be the men who take up this position. They're not just the church's deacons. They are your deacons. Men, do not forget now the trust that they have put into you. Do not forget that it is they who voted for you, who recommended you, who have sought in you ones who are able to serve them as deacon. And do not forget the intended aim of your service. Luke says, The word of God continued to increase after these seven had been set apart and, and prayed for and commissioned to serve. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. When the apostles made the decision not to neglect their divine calling to the ministry of the word, they had time to preach and to teach and to lead. And the result was that the word went forward in such a way that many disciples were made. That's why we have deacons. They're not there to advocate their cause or argue their corners like representatives or lobbyists. They are set apart for the benefit of Christ's church. They are to serve through things like caring for the building and grounds, supplying needs for communion and baptism and our regular gatherings for fellowship and worship. They administer the funds for aid and comfort of the members of this body and are even ready to step in and help more personally during times of crisis. They lead in welcoming guests, serving as the host for our church body. They give practical help in job hunting, house matters, legal aid, child care, and, and so many other things. Why? Why? To the best of their ability, they eliminate distractions and threats to the unity of the fellowship of the church, giving room for the pastoral leadership to focus on prayer and preaching that the church might flourish in making disciples, all of which rebounds up to the glory of God who saves through Christ. The call to be a deacon is a high calling. It is a privilege and a responsibility that should be treasured. But that highness of the calling doesn't come through position and authority, but through humble, loving service that seeks the unity of God's people for the glory of Christ. Father, as we think about this task that you've called these men to, as we think about the the joy that we hope will accompany it, Father, it is an honored task, and yet paradoxically, it's it's a task that does not seek its own honor but the honor of your son as as they serve. And so, Father, we pray even now that you will help not only us as a congregation better understand the role of deacons in the life of our church, but that you will also help these men to better understand and be committed to the task that they are, are about to be set apart for. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.